Join with me in listening as I read from Mark 2, 13 through 17 on page 9 of our service guide. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, good morning once again. It's so good to see all of you. I uh, was in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I'm calling it Louisville now because I've been gone for like nine months or something uh, and because I'm trying to contextualize. Uh, but Louisville, I was back in Louisville, uh, LVL, uh, this, this past week for the first time since we moved from there. Uh, uh, about nine months ago, and I was there for the last Together for the Gospel conference, a conference that uh, has a really rich legacy that has been used in my life to encourage my heart and galvanize me in the faith um, on numerous occasions over the years, and this was a bittersweet one because it was, as I said, the final one. And for some people, when they're at a conference, it is it is the ultimate kind of mountaintop experience, especially uh, when you're at a conference with 12,000 other Christians who all want to be there. And so the singing is incredible. You have uh, world-class preaching. Everything about it is, on one level, incredible. Kind of the, the, the most amazing spiritual experience you, you might imagine. And yet, as much as I enjoyed the conference and was edified by the preaching and the singing, it made me miss you all, because it is our little, gath our little gathering here, to me, is so much more sweet, so much more precious, so much more rich and encouraging and edifying than anything I could experience in a, in a big stadium of, of 12,000 people. And that's because we are family. We are, we are covenant members together. And I am responsible for you and you are responsible for me in a way that just simply is not true in a room of strangers. And so I just want you to know that, that uh, as, as good as it was to be there, and I'm kind of exhausted from it, uh, it, it someone who also was there told me this morning, it was almost too much of a good thing. Uh, you know, uh, singing, preaching, conversing, it was a lot of that. I want you to know that it made my heart grow fonder for you, and it is such an honor and a privilege to get to open God's word and lift our voices in song uh, with my beloved family members in Christ. So with that, please turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, as is our custom here at RCBC, we pick up where we left off. And so um, go ahead and turn with me to Mark 2, starting in verse 13. And as you're making your way there, I'll, I'll just uh, highlight one thing for you by way of context. So this is the second in a series of 
five successive clashes that Jesus is having with religious leaders. So increasingly, the religious establishment, the Jewish religious elite are becoming intimidated by, angered by this new rabbi on the scene who is teaching with an authority they don't have and who has the, uh, has the audacity to heal and to even forgive sin. And so this is a series of, of five clashes. I'm just going to show them to you uh, in, in your Bible. So look, uh, look in your Bible at the subheadings. Now, these subheadings are not inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit. In fact, the chapters numbers and the verse numbers are not original uh, and inspired by the Holy Spirit. But just look at the subheadings here. At the beginning of chapter 2, you have one subheading, and, and yours might say something different, but mine says Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. So that's clash number one with the religious leaders. Number two is our passage today, starting in verse 13. Number three is our passage next week, starting in verse 18. Number four is our passage the following week, Lord willing, starting in verse 23. And the fifth and final clash is right there at the beginning of chapter 3. And look how these five clashes end. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. This is all building towards something. Chapter 3, verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is not going to go well for Jesus from an earthly perspective. And this is the second of these five clashes that is ratcheting up this sense of, of growing opposition to who Jesus is and what he claims to do. And read the passage that just now, uh, Mark 2, verses 13 to 17. And I think there are three lessons that uh, arise, that emerge out of these verses for us. And that's what I want to reflect on with you this morning. First of all, who Jesus sees. Second, where Jesus goes. And third, why Jesus came. Who Jesus sees, it's verses 13 and 14. Where Jesus goes, verses 15 and 16, and why Jesus came. That's verse 17. First, who Jesus sees. Look there again at verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. Verse 14. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, before we go further, it's important to understand something about who tax collectors were. A few weeks ago, we saw a demon-possessed man, and then we saw a sick old lady, Peter's mother-in-law, and then we encountered a leper, and last week we encountered a paralytic. Well, here we have a tax collector. Uh, in, in order to understand uh, who tax collectors were, you've got to understand something about the Roman Empire at the time. It spanned nearly two million miles, and all the people under its jurisdiction, including here in Palestine, were expected to pay ultimate tribute to the emperor, to Caesar. The Romans actually didn't care much about your theology 
as long as your God knew its place on a pantheon, a, a, a menu of deities underneath the ultimate God of the day, Caesar. Caesar. And at the end of the day, Rome, they, as I said, they didn't care too much about your theology as long as you didn't think your God was ultimate. But they also just wanted really two things. They wanted, they were interested in your loyalty and your money. As long as you gave them those two things, they were happy. As long as you recognized the supremacy of Caesar over your God of choice, and as long as you offered tribute, paid your taxes, they would leave you alone. Which is why they did not leave the Jews alone. They sought to make life miserable for these Jews who claimed words like the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. That's Deuteronomy 6.4, the Hebrew Shema. That is the heart of Judaism. Those words fly directly in the face of the supremacy of Caesar. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And to quote this God, the Jews would go on to quote this God as saying, for example, in the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, Jews had the audacity to look at Caesar, the most powerful human on the planet, and say, you're number two. You're number two. Caesar, we will honor you, but we will not bow to you. We answer to the God who made us and who made you, Caesar. Well, the Romans did not take this in stride. This provoked them. This enraged them. So they sought to make life miserable for these upstart angsty Jews. And one of their strategies for making life miserable for these Jews was financial. They sought to tax them into poverty and tax them into irrelevance at the margins of the empire. So a tax collector was someone who worked for Caesar by exacting exorbitant sums from the people in order to satisfy that, that tax collector's immediate superiors, but also to be able to have some excess to pocket himself. So a guy on Rome's payroll collecting taxes for Caesar named Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the priestly tribe at that, this would have been the sound of scandal. We are staring here at a traitor. He's working for the enemy, the oppressor, in order to secure a comfortable life for himself at his people's expense. This was a shame and honor culture. Levi is a stain on his family's name. One commentator writes this, quote, A Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a judge or witness in Jewish court, expelled from the Jewish synagogue, and a cause of disgrace to his Jewish family. It may be that contact with Levi was actually more offensive than contact with a leper, 
since a leper's condition was not chosen, whereas a tax collector's absolutely was. But Levi, sitting in a tax booth, has done the calculation and decided it's worth it. How do we know that? Because no one forced him to be in that tax booth. You don't just drift into a Roman tax booth. You don't just drift onto Roman's pay, Rome's payroll. No, Levi has done the calculation. He's, he's seeing his family and friends taken advantage of, oppressed in grinding poverty, and probably thinks, yeah, that's not ideal. It's not like I prefer to see my family struggling like that, but it's worth it to me. He's receiving their scorn, his family's shame. And he's saying, yeah, it's not ideal, but it's worth it. It's a price worth paying for this status and security from Rome. And so there he is, Levi, the Jew, working for Rome. It's just another Tuesday or whatever until the new rabbi on the scene starts suddenly approaching him. Now, what would you expect for a new rabbi to try to, to, who's wanting to establish his credentials in the Jewish community? You would expect, first of all, that he would have no interaction with a tax collector. But if he is going to have some kind of interaction, you would expect him to approach the tax booth and launch into a righteous tirade. But that's not what we read. The text says Jesus saw Levi. Of all the people that Jesus could have used his limited time and gone out of his way to approach, it is this treacherous, shameful sellout. And when Jesus gets closer to the booth, he doesn't launch into that tirade. He doesn't scold. He summons. He invites, follow me. Verse 14, follow me. Yes, you, Levi. Yes, I'm looking at you. Get up and come after me. This surprising encounter in Levi's life should have the ring of familiarity because if you're a follower of Jesus, then it's your story too. It's not that you went out looking for Jesus. It's that he went out looking for you. He saw you. He found you. He spoke to you. He summoned you. And if you belong to him by faith, it's because he crossed the ultimate barrier, the insurmountable barrier of your own treachery to find you exactly where you were sitting. We're all sitting somewhere in sin. Yeah, it's not a, a Roman tax booth in first century Palestine, but, but we're all sitting, as it were, somewhere in our sin. We've all rebelled, not, not against a Roman emperor. It's actually far worse than that. We've rebelled against the creator of the Roman emperor, the Lord of heaven and earth. Some of you have spent years of your life rebelling against your maker while sitting not in a tax booth but in a church pew it is possible it is possible you, it, 
there's not only one way to offend God. There's not only one way to avoid God. You can avoid God and live for yourself in overt, kind of obvious ways, but you can also do it in subtle, sophisticated, spiritual ways. You can be sitting in a church and yet still beneath the veneer living for yourself, bowing to the supremacy not of Caesar or of God, but of the one looking back at you in the mirror. But there's not just a lesson here about how Jesus sees and moves toward us, but there's also a lesson about how we ought to see and move toward others. That the most pressing question for us is not how well do you see others, that's an important question. How well do you see others? But the more fundamental question is, which others do you see? In other words, it's not just a question about your eyesight, but about your heart. What kind of person, friend, what kind of person are you willing to slow down for? I understand you're busy, but you slow down for something. Every one of you slows down for something. For, for some of you, it, it may be exercise or entertainment. Perhaps it's a relationship. Perhaps it's a problem in your life that is dominating your attention. Perhaps it's your, it's your financial investments. Whatever it is, you do slow down for something. Jesus Christ slowed down for people. People like Levi. Who is someone in your life, someone not yet following Jesus, that you could slow down enough for this week to, to really see and speak to? See, Jesus slowed down for Levi's, people like Levi, because they were magnets for his heart. Jesus' heart was like magnetically attracted, magnetically drawn to people on the outskirts, people who had been scorned and shamed and forgotten by those who had loved them most. I mean, the reason we're here this morning, the reason why we have such a big and glorious gospel to celebrate is because Jesus, the one we serve, the one we celebrate, has a soft spot, not for self-righteous religious people, but he has a soft spot for sinners. That's why it was so appropriate, the words that Josh said when he welcomed us. We are not a church for people who have everything put together, everything figured out, who are squeaky clean moral religious people. No, we are a church for sinners and sufferers and strugglers and those who have made a royal mess of their life but have found the one who can put it back together. There are so many image bearers here in Richmond that we will only notice, that we will only see with the, with the heart and the eyes of Christ if we're just willing to slow down, to look 
to stop, to care. And again, there at the end of verse 14, Jesus says, follow me, and Levi got up and followed him. This is amazing, because remember I said that Levi didn't just drift into that tax booth, but he had calculated, he had made a decision. He had, he had, this was the calculation, okay? It is worth trading away my dignity and my honor in order to get this status and security from Rome. And look at the end of verse 14. Levi got up and followed him, which meant what? He made another calculation, except this time he's trading away that status and security that he had given up all his integrity for. He had lost everything to get this, and now he's willing to give away this in order to get Jesus. He gave it all for the rabbi who saw him and loved him and invited him out of his sin. Now, perhaps you, if you're honest, you hear those words, follow me. And those words sound ominous. I mean, those words sound like the beginning of the end of your autonomy, your freedom, your happiness. The, the background sound is that of shackles when you hear the words, follow me. But friend, whether or not you believe in God, I can tell you that on the authority of the God who made you, as he's revealed himself so generously to us in his word, I can tell you that you are already shackled. Follow me is actually an invitation not into bondage, but into freedom. See, the world around you wants to convince you otherwise. The world around you wants to convince you that you are already free, but Jesus will shackle you. But no, Jesus has come to break us out, to release us, to shatter our shackles. You know this. Just think about the, the, the mantras of the world through through songs and through uh, Disney movies and through commercials and through everything around us. It's the air we breathe. The world says, believe in yourself. Jesus shows up and says, no, believe in me. The world says, be true to yourself. Jesus says, no, be true to me. The world says, discover yourself. Jesus says, no, and I quote, deny yourself. The world says, follow your heart. And Jesus says to Levi and to you, no, follow me. And that's what Levi does. And that's what we're called to do every single day. By the way, Parents, that this is what we pray for, isn't it? I mean, that, that Mark 2.14 would occur in our children's hearts. That, that they would hear the call of Christ, get up, leave the sin that so easily entangles, and follow Jesus with complete abandon for the rest of their days. And the good news is that it's all, just like in this verse, all by grace. 
What was Levi doing in that tax booth to merit the attention of Jesus? What was he doing to win the attention of Jesus? Absolutely nothing. And yet, just because we can rest in this beautiful reality that God is sovereign in the heavens and saves whomever he pleases, that doesn't mean that we parents are also not responsible. We've got to make sure before we worry about our kids' hearts that our hearts belong to Jesus, that we are staying close to him because it's, it's almost impossible to lead a child somewhere that you yourself are unwilling to go. The classic passage in, in Deuteronomy 6, we're, we're not going to turn there, but some of you might be familiar with, with, these, with the classic charge to Israelite parents to talk about the things of the Lord as you're on your way from thing to thing, right? Post the words of the Lord on the, the door frames of your house. Be rehearsing the commandments of God throughout your daily life. And that is, a, that is a, a good passage for parenting. It applies to parents. But do you know that before there's anything said about the work of parenting, God first, address, first addresses the parents. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Before you worry about your kids, make sure you love the Lord your God with all of your heart. These words that I command you shall be on your heart, and only then will you be in a place to impress them on your kids. Parents, let's be honest, this is hard. This is a struggle. We can feel like walking hypocrites. I lost my patience with my kids last night. I had to ask for forgiveness. But know this, you're always modeling something. And if you can't model righteousness at every moment, at least model repentance. I don't want my kids to grow up and say, daddy never sinned, because then they wouldn't have known daddy very well. I certainly don't want them to grow up and say, daddy never thought he sinned. I want them to grow up and say, daddy was a big sinner, but he believed in a big savior and he was a big repenter when he did sin. Follow me. Those are words of rescue. And it's an invitation that still rings through the pages of Scripture and the, the, down the corridors of time to you today. Are you mainly following your heart this morning, following the world, or are you following the King? Number two, where Jesus goes. Where Jesus goes. Verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Here in verses 15 and 16, Mark is just further clarifying the kinds of people for whom Jesus has come, the kinds of people he is drawn to and as a result are drawn to him. In other words, Mark wants us to realize what Jesus did with 
Levi at the tax booth wasn't some random exception to his normal way of things. No, Jesus came for people like that. And what we have here is Levi in one of his first acts of discipleship, one of his first acts as a Jesus follower, throwing an epic feast for Jesus. This is Levi's coming out party, his conversion party. He would have been a man of means, as I said earlier, because remember, he traded away all of his honor in order to get that comfortable life. He would have been a man of means, so this would have been no small affair. He's sparing no expense in celebrating, get this, Levi is sparing no expense in celebrating the man who is about to make him poor. He's not getting another check from Rome. But he is entrusting his unknown future to this man who has utterly changed his life. I just love trying to imagine the scene of this conversion party. There wasn't a reputable person on the guest list. There wasn't a good man there to be spoken of. Why would Levi do this? Jesus didn't command it. Why would have this been the natural response to the invitation of Jesus? Well, it's always dangerous to psychoanalyze biblical characters 2,000 years after the fact, but I'm just going to hazard a guess. Levi is not doing this, not spending the remaining amount of his money just because he's so beside himself with excitement that he's finally found someone willing to scold him. Someone willing to wag their finger and shame him. No. He found someone who for the first time, perhaps in years, if not his whole life, actually saw him as more than just a sellout, as more than just a traitor, as more than just someone to be kind of kicked to the curb and forgotten about because they're a stain on on the, the national and family honor. No, Jesus saw someone made in his image, loved by God, the very kind of person for whom Jesus had left heaven to get A little over a hundred years ago, a theologian named B.B. Warfield wrote an essay, you can find it uh, via Google, it's titled The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And it's a study of the various emotions of Jesus that show up in the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And do you know what Warfield concludes? He concludes after that study that the most dominant emotion that we see displayed in the life of Christ is what? What do you think is the most dominant emotion that is associated with Jesus? It's compassion. More than any other, compassion shows up more frequently Unlike the Pharisees, these, and by the way, this is the first time Pharisees are are mentioned uh, in, in the gospel according to Mark. We've seen teachers of the law, we've seen scribes, but this is an even kind of narrower 
sect of, of people who had figured out the purity laws and were keeping themselves utterly pristine, or so they thought. But unlike them, unlike self-righteous religious people, the heart of Jesus Christ brims and bursts with floodwaters of compassion for sinners. You see, it's easy when studying this scene at Levi's dinner party, I think, to, to go wrong in one of two ways. It's easy to either derive more out of the story than is there, right? To kind of pull more out of the story than is there, to overapply it. But the other danger is to underapply it, to derive less than is there. Here's what I mean. One danger in this passage has been used in this way in the, in, in, in the past. One danger is to read a passage like this and say, great, this is my license to sin. Now, it's not always going to be put that, uh, you know, that overtly, but, you know, you read a passage like this and you say, oh man, Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, so I am just going to lead myself into temptation and do whatever the heck I want because, after all, this is gospel ministry. Well, no, that's not the right lesson to draw from this passage. I think Rosaria Butterfield put it best when she said simply, Jesus sat with them, but he did not sin with them. Jesus sat with them, but he did not sin with them. But the other danger is to read a passage like this and not be in any way challenged to sit with them. To, to not be in any way challenged to draw closer in, in, to those who don't know Christ. Rather, you know, to just kind of remain on this balcony of superiority, looking down on the unwashed masses. But friends, in the gospel according to Luke, Jesus is not accused of being an acquaintance of sinners or a passerby of sinners, but a friend. And in order to be accused of being someone's friend, you have to have been seen with them on more than one occasion. You have to have spent significant time with them. See, Jesus, he breaks our categories. He defies our expectations. He doesn't let us succumb to either of these ditches if we're going to follow him. Jesus managed to be a safe place for sinners without being a safe place for sin. And that's what we want to be here at RCBC. We are the family of Christ an embassy of Christ, a representation of Christ. And so we at RCBC want to be a safe place for sinners. What other kind of people are there? We want to be a safe place for sinners without being a safe place for sin. We want to be a church where everyone is free to struggle, but expected to repent, which is exactly why what Jesus elaborates on in the final verse. So we've seen who Jesus sees, we've seen uh, where Jesus goes, and third, why Jesus came. Look at verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
as a preacher, you're always scouring life for illustrations. Uh, life is, a, is a, a, a passing parade of illustrations if you just have eyes to see them. But it's always easier if uh, Jesus himself gives you one. Because then you don't have to go find one and you know that it's, it's inspired. And here is one. I'm not going to improve on Jesus. He describes sin as a disease. You see that there? This is, this is one way to think about our spiritual malady, our spiritual condition. And Jesus is saying, he's implying that the illness inside of all of us is terminal. What else could it be? This is not just you know, hoity-toity religious language, what else could it be but terminal if we are severed, disconnected, cut off from the very source of life? That is the definition of death. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but, but sin is the only noun in the English language that is larger in its singular form. Okay, so dogs is a larger category than dog. But sin is a larger category than sins. In other words, we're not just sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Sin is a pervasive disease that has made our hearts curved in on themselves, self, made us self-absorbed, self-regarding, self-reliant, and convinced we don't need to go see the doctor. We, we live in an age of identity politics. This is clear. Whatever cable news channel you turn on, whatever social media feed uh, you, you checked Last, you, if you're looking, you can see that we live in this age of identity politics where humans who share the image of God are constantly being divvied up and categorized and subcategorized into an endlessly massive number of competing tribes. But Jesus is saying he's crashing into our cultural moment with all of our little, uh, our little tribes, and he's saying, no. In the final analysis, there are only two. There are only two groups. There are only two tribes. Now, it can be easy to mishear him here. It can be easy to just read this on the surface, the words of verse 17, and say, okay, I got it. I think I'm tracking with this preacher. He's saying the two categories of people are the healthy and the sick, the righteous and sinners, good people, and bad people. But see, Jesus is always operating at a kind of a deeper level than we might assume. He's being subversive here because that's how the Pharisees divvied up things. That's how the Pharisees viewed things in their own favor. That's how they divided up humanity. But Jesus enters the scene and says, you're, you're right and you're wrong. You're sort of right, you're sort of wrong. You're right about the number of groups. There are only two. But you're wrong about the nature of those groups. The difference, Jesus is saying, is not between good people and bad people, but between those who fancy themselves good and those who know they're not. 
Those who think that they're well and those who know they are desperately sick. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have come not for those who think they're healthy and put together and just fine without a doctor, but for those who know in their bones that they're terminal, terminally sick. If we're honest, that there's an inner Pharisee lurking inside all of us. Each of us has persons in mind, groups in mind that get under our skin that we just, we just can't abide, we can't stand. Whether it's talking heads on the TV or people in our own lives, there are just people that we may not say it out loud, but we tend to think they are beyond the pale. They are without hope. They are the untouchables. Yeah, they really need the gospel. And if you read a passage like this and you look into the mirror of Jesus' words and you see someone else's reflection there, then the point is missed on you. Even that thought that this passage would, 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 would prompt you to start confessing the sins of some other group betrays, reveals that you don't see yourself yet as desperately sick. Verse 17, friends, is a heat-seeking missile into the heart of human pride. But we're called to embrace this unflattering diagnosis. You know, in Romans chapter 5, Paul lists four qualifications for salvation. Four things, four preconditions that have to be in place in order for you to qualify for the salvation and forgiveness of God. Do you know what they are? You must be weak. You must be ungodly. You must be sinful. You must be God's enemy. It's not flattering, but it's true. It takes humility to be a Christian, to own that list of things, to, to look into the reflection of a passage like this and say, I see myself. That's me. Left to myself, I would be a sellout. I would be a traitor like Levi, or I would be judging those who are invited to the feast like the Pharisees. When you see, friend, how Jesus shows hospitality to you, how can you exclude anyone else? When you really see who it is he came for and dined with and loved until the very end, how can we fancy ourselves above that holy calling? As Christians, we're just those who have found the doctor we're not any better. It's not, finding a doctor is not a moral virtue. We're just those who have found the doctor and are on a mission to let others know about him. That's why we planted this church. We did not start a new church just so we could have a holy huddle to get together and see how pretty and pristine we could make things ecclesiologically. No, 
We want to be not just a museum for saints, not just a laboratory for experimenting with how to do church in a different way. We want to be a launching pad, both to the neighborhoods and to the nations. Richmond is growing at twice the rate of the state of Virginia as a whole and of the nation as a whole. After one year of the pandemic, LinkedIn put out a survey that said Richmond was the number three city in all of America for most transplants since March 2020. More and more people are moving to this city, which means more and more Levi's and Pharisees and people who don't yet know Jesus, whether they're irreligious or incredibly religious, people who have not bowed their knee to the Savior. And that's why we want to be a bright and bold bastion of his grace for those who need it. We aren't the doctor, but we do have the medicine. We do have the medicine. And speaking of medicine, imagine if, imagine if I were on my deathbed in the hospital dying of some strand of cancer and at the, in the 11th hour, in the final week of my life, a cure was finally discovered, confirmed, peer-reviewed, it works and in love, one of you comes to me as I, as I lie there, frail, decaying, almost, almost dead. And, and, and you, you, bring, you rush in and, and you bring me this pill that will cure me, that will heal me. I mean, I could be beside myself with gratitude. I, I, could, I could say, give, give me that pill, give me that pill. And you, you place it in my hand. And, and I, could, I could look at that pill and, and, and affirm that it exists and even believe that if I take it, it will save me. But if it remains in my hand, I will die with the cure two feet away. Friend, it is not enough to just be a religious person, to just affirm intellectually that Jesus died for sins. It's not enough to just once upon a time have made a decision for Christ that has had no bearing on your life since. It's not enough to just simply say, yes, I know he could save me. We have to actually ingest and internalize by faith what he has done for us. Martin Luther said, what good is it to you that God is God if he is not God to you? Levi didn't just affirm that Jesus had called him. He wasn't just sitting in the tax booth and responded and saying, yep, I believe now that the rabbi exists. There he is. Yep, I believe that he called me. Yep, I believe that if I got up, life would get better. No, he actually did something. He got up, he left everything behind, and he followed Christ. But you know what I love most about the story? I'll say this as I conclude. I, I, love that, I love that Jesus doesn't call us to do anything that he himself is unwilling to do. Anything that he himself hasn't already done. And I don't just mean that Jesus befriended and hung out with lost people, and so should you. That's true, but we're, we're going deeper than that, okay? Zoom out for, for a little bit. Je Jesus, think about, think about this. Jesus, Levi left 
this place of security and comfort in the tax booth. But what Levi left was nothing compared to what Jesus had left. Jesus left the ultimate place of security and status and comfort, worshipped by angels, enjoying the love of the Trinity for all of eternity in heaven. He had all the glory. He had all the love. He had everything. And yet, he left it all behind to get us. That's what he didn't have. He didn't have a multitude of worshipers from every tribe and language and nation gathered around the throne. See, he wanted to be known as more than just creator and as more than just king. He wanted to be known and loved and enjoyed as savior. The gospel is not just a sweet sentimental religious idea friend it is this story of an invasion heaven breaking into earth the future breaking back into the present in the person of jesus who lived a perfect life unlike levi unlike the pharisees and unlike you and then he was obedient even to the point of death death on a cross and on that cross he absorbed in himself the justice of God. He exhausted the wrath of God for sinners. And three days later, he vacated his tomb. He got up and walked out and offers new life and endless hope to anyone who will turn away from their sin and put their trust in him, who will get up, whether from a Roman tax booth or from a seat in a church and talk to someone after the service and say, hey, what that said, you thought I was going to call for an altar there I wasn't uh, but to get up after the service and to not leave without talking to someone here and saying I thought I got it but that preacher said some stuff that I never thought of before and I'm not sure I've actually ingested the pill I'm, I'm not sure I've actually received Christ as king of my life will you Help me understand how I can do that. We would love to talk with you about that. And of course, this scene around Levi's table wouldn't be the last time Jesus was surrounded by sinners. That's how he would spend his final hours as well. One on his left, the other on his right. One reviling, the other repenting. Here he is dining with sinners, but soon he will be dying for sinners. Here he is feasting and drinking wine, but soon he will be crying out, I thirst. And he suffered that so that we could have the spread, so that we could have the feast, so that we could have all of this. He was rejected and forsaken and exposed. And as we saw two weeks ago, brought outside the camp and killed so that we could be swept up into the party and welcomed and given a seat of honor at the table of the king. That's what we'll celebrate this evening when we take the Lord's Supper together, that we are seated, not just at the table of an ex-tax collector, but at the, at the table of the risen king who has, came, who has come to get them and has come to get you. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we praise you that you have come for all kinds of sinners, obvious ones and more sophisticated ones. Help us, O Lord, to make a pile of our bad deeds and a pile of all of our good deeds and to flee them both into the arms of you. And we praise you that in your arms we find welcome and rest. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.